Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Some folks deny that it exists. Other folks call it an illusion or a mental aberration. Other folks call it just the absence of good, the inability to know better. But still others call it what it is. Whether you find it in Hannibal Lecter, in Voldemort, in Jeffrey Dahmer, or in Jack the Ripper, we know it when we see it. Evil. Normally, as far as a show intro goes, I'd wind up a little longer for the pitch, but not today. I want our guest to be able to speak to this just as quickly as possible, because it's the gas that powers so much of the engine of contemporary curiosity about crime. It's the dark matter of the universe that keeps our telescopes trained at the night sky, wondering what it is, where it came from, and what to do with it. And today's guest knows more than most folks do because he is the investigator who cracked the case of one of the most heinous murders in Georgia history. Clay Bryant, author of The Cold Case Murder of Fred Wilkerson, recently published by the History Press. As we near the end of our series on cold cases for the chilly winter months, we're thrilled to have him join us to untangle this black widow's web. Clay, welcome to Crime Capsule. We are so glad to have you with us. Well, thank you, Al. Enjoy the opportunity to be with you tonight. So let me start off by saying congratulations first on the publication of this volume, as well as I understand that you were recently inducted into a Hall of Fame uh, back home thereabouts. Can you tell us about that particular experience? Uh, Georgia Writers uh, Hall of Fame in Eatonton, Georgia. I got an invitation to come over there and make a presentation about my book. And it's uh, for sale and listed over there in their work, and uh, which I was an honor to me and I appreciated that opportunity. Well, I hope they had a barrel full of champagne waiting for you when you got there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was nice. The event was there. There was about, I guess, probably close to 100 people there. and It was a question and answer thing about my book and about my background and so forth and so on. And It was, uh, I think they had the thing captioned as wine and crime. <laughs> so, wine and crime. A, we love it. We love it. <laughs> it, it, was, it was a good experience. The people very nice to me. Yeah, usually the wine goes before the crime. In this case, it kind of nicely came after it, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it did. It did. Right off the bat, um, you have a longtime career in law enforcement, and it is so uh, special for us to get to have our authors on who have actually been directly involved in the cases that they write about. Sometimes we've had judges such as Johnny Promomo, you know, writing about the sniper killings down in Texas. Sometimes we've had uh, folks like Rita Schuler, who was a you know detective investigator uh, down in South Carolina. Uh, but it's 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 rare for us, Clay, and we're especially delighted to have such an expert uh, opinion on there. Would you tell us just a little bit about your background in, in law enforcement and the fact that it started as as you said, uh, kind of on your on the front seat of your daddy's patrol car. <laughs> Well, that's, that's the truth. My father was a chief of police in a small town of Hogan for Georgia. And uh, basically, I was raised on the seat of the police car. Uh, he was uh, he was kind of advanced for an old small town police chief. He went to the Southern Police Institute in Louisville, Kentucky. He was in the first 
1966 class of the Georgia Police Academy. Uh, he uh, he well educated himself, and he was a people's person, and he was probably the best investigator that I ever knew. And uh, he taught me that you know it's about people and relationships and people having faith in you and they'll talk to you and tell you what you need to know. And it has served me well. And uh, you had mentioned that about uh, uh, being the investigator and writing the book. It gives you a, a different perspective, I think. I think that uh, it allows, you know, you, people will tell you, you know, you don't ever get emotionally involved in, in the cases you, that you work on. And I can tell you this, if a case is 20 years old and you don't get emotionally involved in it, uh, you're not going to get very far. Uh, you know, I, first thing I generally do is I get to the survivors, the people who've lost the victim, the people who were close, their friends, their family. And, you know, and they've, in, in these cases that I've uh, had, you know, some of them have been carrying that baggage for 20 years. And uh, I try to get to know them and feel a little bit of the feelings of abandonment and so forth that they feel, pick up some of that baggage and it helps me stay focused and try to find justice for these folks. Yeah. Keeps you grounded too. Cause you know, we remember that these are not just cases to be studied. They are real people with real loss in their lives and they are struggling to come to terms with that. Now, how did you in particular get your start as uh, law enforcement? Uh, I started with the Georgia State Patrol the, the day after I got out of high school as a radio operator at 18 years old. And I stayed uh, with the patrol at, at that till I was 21. And at 21, I was promoted to trooper. And for a while, I was the youngest trooper in the state and uh, stayed with the state patrol for the next nine years. And my father uh, passed away of a heart attack at 46 years old. And uh, the city offered me his police chief's job. It was, you know, it was at home, and it was about the same money. And I guess for all the wrong reasons, I took the job. And uh, but I, but I enjoyed it. It was at home, and you know, it was. Uh, I stayed there and ran the police department for about twelve years. And uh, then I got out of police work for a while. I started a tire business, and uh, never was really satisfied. You know, it was. I had. It was in my blood, I felt like. And the district attorney uh, had contacted me, and he, uh, you know, I have a law degree, and he knew that uh, he needed an investigator. And uh, he asked me to apply to the job, and I did. And the rest was history. I spent the rest of my time uh, working for the district attorney's office. Actually, it was in the Coweta Circuit, which is a five county circuit. It's Troop, Carroll, Merriweather, Heard. And uh, Troop Carroll, Merriweather, and Heard, and uh, those five counties. And uh, uh, I worked with the district attorney, with you know the ADAs in all five counties, and uh, but mostly in uh, Troop and Heard counties. But uh, I had a good relationship with the folks, and worked for a good guy. His name was Pete Scandalakis. He's the head now of the uh, Georgia Prosecuting Attorney Council. But uh, uh, it was through him and the opportunities that he gave me, I was able to uh, do what I did. And 
uh, appreciate him for. Pete figures prominently in your book, of course, and um, he's got a big old big old role to play. You know, once you get down into the the details of the case, uh, let me ask you this real quick: uh, How many, when you were serving as an investigator in that in that role, um, about how many cases were y'all turning over a year with this five county circuit? I mean, y'all must have been cranking them out, huh? Well, three of the counties we were we would have somewhere around a thousand criminal cases per county, uh, Coweta, Troop, and uh, Carroll were the big counties with populations, you know, 75 to 100,000. They were, we stayed pretty busy. And the cold cases I worked on, uh, they were on top, <laughs> they were on top of the uh, cases that we did every day. We just kind of stumbled into these and we had a tremendous amount of luck with them. Uh, as a matter of fact, I got invited to a uh, seminar in Charleston. Uh, I had a case or two that where I had some involvement with the uh, NCIS, the Naval Criminal Investigative Service. After them coming familiar with me, they invited me to Charleston and uh, to a seminar. And actually, they used a couple of my cases that uh, we talked. They talked the class with. They came up with a thing called the element of solvability is where they, uh, the NCIS has the largest cold case squad in the world because they deal with naval bases and marine bases and the transient people, you know, transient population there. So they have a lot of cases that, you know, go cold. And uh, anyway, this element of solvability, it, it, they took a case and it, uh, they give numerical values to like the age of the case, the fact that uh, witnesses are gone or, the, or how much physical evidence is no longer there. They came up with that and they applied it to my cases and they said that during the time that I operated that I was the most prolific cold case investigator in single event homicides in the country to their knowledge. That was kind of, it was a shock. (laughs) But they didn't send a check for it though. Well, (laughs) that was their oversight, you know. (laughs) We'll uh, we'll forgive them that, but only just. (laughs) No, actually it it, it was quite an honor, you know. It was quite an honor, and uh, I, you know, the, there's nothing in the world that, gave, that gives me any more pleasure or pride than to be able to right a long-standing wrong, especially to the degree that these were. It's fulfilling, to say the least. It's hard for us to be able to express how much we appreciate your efforts. You know, I mean, and um, here we are coming on long after the fact, but we sure are grateful. Now, you've written two books. This, uh, the one we're going to be talking mostly about today, about Fred Wilkerson, is your second book. Uh, give give us a just a quick sketch of your first one, which came out not too long ago. The first book I written was a lady. It, her body was in a well as well, but it, it was found quickly. Uh, she was. It was the longest, the worst case of spousal abuse you could ever imagine. 1970, and the irony of this was it happened just outside the city limits of Hogansville, Georgia, and uh, everybody in the world knew that uh, pretty much the story about what was going on in the house and the things that happened, and, you know, the woman, she, her husband literally stomped a child out of her at one point in the early Ugh, 60s. Goodness. And uh, it, it was just, it was, there's no words to describe it. But anyway, uh, my dad got a call from the sheriff's office and said, hey, we need to, would you go out there and take some photographs for us back in the Polaroid days, you know? And uh, I was in the police department with him. He said, you want to ride out there with me? And it was Junior Turner had found the lady in the well. They'd been looking for her since the night before. 
She'd actually had hid under his house to get away from her husband, who had just beaten her. Her name was Gwendolyn Moore. And there were some shenanigans went on about the case, the investigation, and basically they didn't want to solve the case. The case was solved. For whatever reason, the man just got scot-free away with it. And in 19, I guess 2002, I'd been, I'd been at work. My daddy had some really strong feelings about this case. Every time he'd see his old man, he'd say, you know, he ought to be on death row in Tattanawa County for what he did. And, uh, but, you know, inch as good as a mile, and it was literally a stone's throw outside the city, and he had no jurisdiction there. Ugh. And uh, 30 years later, 33 years later, I worked to work for the DA's office, and uh, I'd been to work about 10 days. Investigator called me and said, Clay, do you remember a case where the lady was in a well in Hogan'sville, just outside of town, and as crazy as it seems, I said, not only do I remember it, I was standing there when she came out of the well. A niece had found a death certificate for this woman that she uh, from an aunt she didn't even know she had, and it's clearly marked on there about the injuries she had, the cause of death, and it was for whatever reason it was just swept under the rug. And I picked the case back up. The DA got involved and. Uh, we were able to, we did a skeletal autopsy and the highway process was broken. So we were able to. Prove strangulation. Him. Absolutely. That, that high old, that's that telltale. Absolutely. And it, it, it was, but she'd been down for 30, uh, 33 years. And it was kind of strange in the autopsy, you know, all her bones were black as ebony. Mm. And I, I didn't realize that. And I asked the pathologist, uh, why was that? And he said, because it was tannic acid from the clippings in the cemetery. Huh. And then, you know, the old coffin, it, it was full of water. The vault was. And he said, uh, oh, those clippings and the tannic acid just bleached everything. Just like I say, black as ebony, but everything was well preserved. How about that? How about that? It was something. It was something. Learn something new, even even from the deceased, you know. I mean, that is really something else. Well, I know you did your daddy proud in, in bringing that one to justice, and um, I'm sure he was smiling down on you that day. There was a bit of irony in that, too. Uh, I say irony. It was, it was a circumstance. I wrote that book as I was investigating the case. I'd just come home at night, you know. Heck, I knew I knew everybody involved in it. And I'd be on my mind. I couldn't sleep. And I'd go in there and start writing. That book stayed on the shelf for 20 years. Never tried to get it published or anything. And uh, I went to a dog shoot <laughs> out at a friend of mine's house. And, uh, the professor of creative writing at LaGrange College was there. And uh, Dr. Williams, he just had a book published. And he was talking about it. It was a social dog shoot. And it was afterwards. So you pretty well figured out. I looked at him. I said, hell, Doc, I wrote a book. <laughs> there you go. He said, I'd like to read it. I, I took him a copy of it, and he asked me, he said, have you ever done anything with this toward getting it published? I said, Doc, I don't know anything about it. He said, well, I do. And uh, he said, would you mind if I submitted it for you? And he did, and I, I didn't even know the, you know the process of it. And about a month later, a guy from Arcadia, the history press, called me and said, Mr. Brown, we want to publish a book. Well, there you go. I, before that, I couldn't even spell author. Now I offer one. <laughs> And twice over, and twice well, over indeed. Um, that is, I uh, love how that works out. That's this, this story had to be told and it had to make, make its way to the light. And so um, I love it. Well, let's, let's take a look at Fred Wilkerson. Uh, this book has had 
not maybe maybe not a twenty year journey to to publication from the moment that you wrote it, but this book has had a long and winding journey itself, just with the history and the facts of the case. And I guess the first question that I want to ask you, uh, Clay, is. Some folks would accuse me here of asking you a philosophical question, and and I actually believe that what I'm about to ask you is not philosophical at all. It is is a question that is very much based in reality because you write time and time again about the question of evil in this case. And I just think we need to go straight to the heart of it right up front uh, because here you say in Cold Case Murder of Fred Wilkerson that you have never in all of your years as uh, investigator and law enforcement officer encountered anyone or anything as evil as uh, the, the lady who killed this man. Now, why do you say that? She involved herself in his life. And she had a history of involving herself, especially in the financial dealings of other people. But this guy, if you look at the way that the things that it cost him and uh, the links that she went to to cover this up, this was planned to, you know, you start talking about premeditation. This was uh, every step was planned. After the man was in the well, uh, less than 100 yards from where she laid her head every night. She wrote a check every six months for a life insurance policy that she, after she had him declared dead at, at seven at seven years, uh, she collected the life insurance policy she'd been paying on ever since that she killed him. What kind of evil, you know, what's it take to do that? You know, and she didn't care anything about his children and the fact that everybody in the world was, had been looking for the man. He was killed in 1987. We recovered his body in 2003. Family got to, and, and to the very end, she denied everything. And, and, and we had, once we put the case together, the case was just rock solid. And it was just, she was just inherently evil. And I don't know, is this is the only victim there ever was? There's some other questionable things that I, that I wonder about. Sometimes when we start looking at criminal behavior, there are some rationalizations that are that are called for. Somebody acts out of desperation, say, you know, somebody feels like they're painted into a corner, whether it's financially or whatever, and they have they have no other means but to, you know, rob that bank or whatever it is. Every now and then, you, you know, you find some accounts for what we call criminal behavior that sort of say, well, I can kind of put myself in that person's shoes and I don't know what I would have done if I'd have been as down as out as, as they were. But then you get on the flip side of that particular coin. Then you get the folks where you just say, I, I don't understand this at all. You know, like, I, how could a person do this? What links would they go to from beginning to end to, to, to cause such suffering and harm? And it just leaves you kind of troubled. She was willing to go to any means necessary to get anything that she wanted. And she did the same thing with her family. She did the same thing with other people that she had run different scams and schemes on. And uh, it's uh, I don't understand it myself, and, and and I guess I'm glad I don't to a degree. I just uh, I would hate to to think that way, but she was at the time she was probably the most evil, conniving person that I'd ever dealt with. She was cold blooded. 
I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. Let's take a look at Fred. Let's talk about Fred for a second. Let's kind of start at the beginning. I mean, he was kind of the polar opposite. I mean, he was good and generous and kind and trusting. And everybody that knew him, everybody that that worked with him, his own, you know, kids and his his wife, whom, you know, uh, Connie, the, the 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 murderer. I mean, she kind of broke up that home, uh, you know, which you talk about. But Fred, Fred seemed to be just the just a, a walking saint, you know, just like an angel on the earth. Well, you know, he fell victim to, to the wiles of a woman, I guess, willing to use any means necessary to get what she wanted. Fred Wilkerson, other than that weakness, uh, he was a family guy. He little league baseball coach, the fire chief of the volunteer fire department in the little community. Uh, his son would tell you, you know, he was there for everything he did. His daughter, you know, he never missed a dance recital. He was just a really nice guy. Just a nice guy. Uh, worked all his life. Uh, he and his wife were married, you know, 30 years, thereabout. And all of a sudden, here came Hurricane Connie. <laughs> she, uh, yeah. She injected herself into his life and it never was the same for him until she ended it for him. What's interesting about this, of course, is that we, we can extol Fred's virtues, you know, all day long. But what's interesting about them, Clay, is that in this particular case, his personality became evidential, right? Because because everybody knew him to be this type of guy, you know, dedicated to his family and, you know, trying to do the best he could by them, providing for them, reliable workers showed up on time, you know, took new jobs, hard jobs to make ends meet, you know, that kind of stuff. When he disappeared, Everybody knew something was wrong. He just wasn't the type of guy to to just up and vanish, was he? It it was it was totally 180 degrees away from his character. You know, and the thing that I never did understand early on, and I wasn't involved in the investigation in 1987, but I fell into this in 2002 uh, or three. And if you took the time to get to know Fred, to know where he came from, to know how he was, there's no way in the world that I would have ever settled for the fact, well, he just got on a vehicle and drove off to a new life. That, that it was, it was just no way that happened. And when they, even when they found his vehicle, he had uncashed payroll checks in it. And if you're going to go start to a new life, you don't hardly leave money on the table. And, uh, but it, but from a personality and, 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 uh, it's in a psychological situation, there's no way in the world Fred Wilson walked away from his children. It just didn't happen. And I don't, I, I just don't understand how sometimes they came to that conclusion other than the fact that they were at a dead end and didn't, there were some things that I would, if I'd been doing an investigation early on, I'd have followed up on a little closer. And some of those things were the things that 
allowed us to locate Fred and let the family have a Christian burial for him, you know? Yeah. You know, it's funny you should mention the the start in a new life theory because our uh, regular listeners will know we just had a, an author from Northern Ohio on a Jane Terzillo, and she actually has a case which seems to match that description fairly closely of a police chief up there named Mel Wiley, who, well, he just up and vanished one day, but, you know, vanished very carefully, and his car was found next to an Amtrak train station, and you know, uh, there's uh, there's a strong speculation that uh, he just got tired of doing what he was doing, and he went out west of California or went maybe down south to Florida and just left it all behind because there was never any evidence of foul play, you know. But here, of course, we we have um, strands of evidence that began to point to a kind of foul play. Will you just tell us kind of what happened the night of that Thanksgiving dinner, the, the, the kind of the last night that Fred Wilkerson was seen alive? Fred ate Thanksgiving dinner with his family, his uh, sisters. After that, Connie Whedon said she had taken everything out. He had bought property, and he and him, he and she had went and got a building loan for the house and whatnot. And he was part owner of everything until she told him that you know I want to. She, in her divorce, she said I want to be able to have uh, a better financial outlook. So uh, I would like for you to deed all this over to me. He deeded the. 23 acres of land to her on the deed for love and affection. And uh, as quick as the house was completely built, she, he had moved his son, Tim, in with him. They were living in the house as well. And as quick as the house was built, he, she wanted a swimming pool. So he went and he couldn't, he was tapped out. He couldn't get enough money from the bank. They wouldn't loan him anymore. But a friend of his signed a note with him, built a swimming pool. As quick as it, the house was in order the way she wanted it, she put he and his son out, and through means of having a co- another man co-sign with her, she was able to buy the building loan out and put a mortgage to, uh, the on the house in her name solely, and, uh, and it was all planned. I mean, but that particular evening, Fred's friend had told him, they were lifelong buddies, and said, Fred, you know, the, the money is not the big thing. It's just I just cannot tolerate that woman being able to get over on you like that. If you don't go, uh, I'm going to send you up to my lawyer and I want you to sue him, to sue her to try to get part of your money back. Fred, under duress from his friend, would say a lawyer, uh, his friend's lawyer on Monday. And the lawyer did advise him. He said, you know, I think we do have a cause of action for you to recover some of your money. And uh, at that point, he draws up a lawsuit and they file a lawsuit. And uh, on Monday and on Tuesday, she served with the lawsuit. She was supposed to go to Florida with her family on Thursday. She had already moved the ex-husband back in to the house that Fred built. And... uh, <laughs> it's 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 unbelievable. But anyway, uh, she jumps up on Wednesday after getting a lawsuit, and she tells her husband, you and the boys, y'all going down and see Uncle Rudy in uh, Tampa or St. Petersburg, and we'll, uh, I've got to, I'm going to stay here. I have to work. Well, 
that evening, what we suppose happened was that uh, after Fred got through with supper, he was supposed to take a trip the next morning. He, he and his son were going to leave and go together. He had permission for his son to ride with him. They, I think we were going to Tennessee. They were uh, worked for fast food merchandisers. And uh, Tim was going to take off with him because it was, you know, he didn't have to be in school or anything. And uh, as it turned out, uh, Fred never showed up. So what we surmised was, was when Tim got home that night, he was, his dad was gone. And they never did go anywhere. Uh, the next morning, they were supposed to leave at five. No dad. He never showed up, never heard anything. Totally out of character. Would have never. Fred Wilson, if you knew him, that was beyond the pale for him. And uh, as it turns out, uh, for the next 17 years, Fred didn't show up. And uh, during that period of time, there are several things and red flags that I think should have, that were raised, it should have led to a much quicker conclusion to this case but for whatever reason it just fell fallow and uh, it was kind of strange the way it came to us uh, we just saw the Moore case and it got a little notoriety uh, we had a storm and uh, district attorney's vehicle got he just bought a new pickup truck and <laughs> yeah. tree fell on it and just demolished it and Tim Wilkerson at that point owned a body shop he asked me, where would I take it? Where do where you think I don't take my truck? I said, I'll take the West Georgia Paint and Body. We got up there, and Tim was talking, and he congratulated us on that case. He said, boy, I'd give anything somebody would look at my father's case again. And uh, Pete asked me if I would be interested in doing that. And I said, sure. And within about, I guess within about a month, we had made a uh, recovered body and made an arrest, and it was uh, worked out very nicely. You know, it... It really is a remarkable part of the story. I mean, you you credit that storm with all its uh, unpredictability and kind of twists and turns. You say there's kind of a there's got to be some divine intervention there, and I I hear you on that. I mean, it kind of it's almost improbable that you would encounter Tim Wilkerson, you know, in 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 this context, and it would come right back up on the heels of your previous cold case, you know. Well, let let me tell you something too that. You know, I said my dad had a tremendous interest in that case. He was, it, it, to him, it was just an insult to justice what happened. I'd been to work at the district attorney's office. I went to work on the 15th day of October. And the day they sent me the death certificate, this young lady showed up at the sheriff's office. Uh, he called me and faxed us. He, he said, I'm going to send you this death certificate, Clay. And he sent it to me. We faxed it over. And I was I was looking at it. I looked at the top of the facts page, and it was October 24th. That was my daddy's birthday. Get a little shiver down your spine sometimes, yeah, yeah. It does. I, I literally get chills thinking about it sometimes. Even this case, that case, the Wilkerson case, and subsequent cases, there were things that I just cannot explain, and I don't, you know, I'm not big into the supernatural or anything like that. I believe some things happen in God's time, and he uses folks to, you know, to find justice is time. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Clay Bryant, author of The Cold Case Murder of Fred Wilkerson, published by the History Press. To order a copy of the book, visit your local independent bookstore or visit arcadiapublishing.com. Join us next week as we continue our conversation with Clay. See you then. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer Ian Douglas, 
and our executive producers, Michael DeLoya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men, and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth, and together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.